This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Some of the things that I used to enjoy like that, I thought, hey, you can take the kids out and say, hey, let's go catch fiddler crabs to go catch the sheephead. And you get the kids out there chasing the little fiddler crabs, putting them in a little bucket, you know? It's all part of it. It's just the expression on a kid's face they're so happy. I don't see that when you're playing these games on a, on a computer. It's a different, I don't know, it's a different smile. Yeah. I don't know, it's, it, I can see a little difference when it's related to being outside and, and you know, fishing than it is when you're sitting behind a computer playing a game. This is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response, but if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website is tomrollandpodcast.com and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done, both the How To Tuesdays, the Full Links, and the Physical Fridays. They all live on tomrollandpodcast.com and the social media is tom underscore roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D on Instagram or 
you can go to our big account, saltwater underscore experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now let's get on to today's show. I'm Captain Sergio Tanis, and uh, this is the Tom Rowan Podcast. All right, Sergio, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Just a little difficulty here in trying to get hooked up with you this morning. That, that's okay. You know? That's that's technology. That's how it happens sometimes. But you got a nice studio there. Well, yeah, it's, it's nice. You know, at, before I was trying to use the big computer, this one worked perfect last night. It's, yeah. It's my laptop that I use for doing this. And this morning, it wouldn't let me in. Okay. Well, tell that's me what technology. you do in that studio. What 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 kind of things do you uh, do you do there? Well, in, in this studio, some of the stuff that I do is I do the Monday night podcast that I do on Facebook and YouTube uh, live. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I do a lot of um, photography here for a lot of my sponsors, a lot of pictures that I take uh, to, to put into the websites or into some of the TV shows, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And uh, it's my way to get away from everybody else. I'm totally <laughs> separate. It's a totally it's a separate building from my house. Is if I'm in the house, I'm going to get, I don't care if I have a separate room, you know, you know how it is. People are going to walk in and the dogs will bark. So this is a little over 400 square feet. I got it insulated with soundproofing stuff to try to keep the noise out. And uh, I kind of get in here and get away from everything. Nice. Well, um, so you got your uh, television show. What's tell me about your television show. Well, actually, we uh, years ago. Uh, story way back in like in the 90s I used to do some stuff for Bright House down here it used to be one of the local stations and I was doing an American TV show and at the same time uh, I was doing radio for uh, 1040 ESPN I was doing their radio show for about 10 12 14 years and then about uh, 12 years ago one of the Spanish stations came to me and said hey nobody's doing a Spanish TV show fishing show there's somebody in Miami or Keys that do one for a month or two. They run out of money, and then that's it. So uh, I hooked up with a guy that used to do everything for uh, Telemundo in Washington, D.C. He moved down here, was starting his own company, uh, decided to go on out on his own. And we started a Spanish TV show, and that just grew, grew, grew. And then uh, last year, some of my sponsors came and said, hey, you know, streaming is a way to go. I think TV... Uh, why don't you try to move some of the put some of the shows on streaming, and why don't you do some uh, American stuff, <laughs> you know, w- with our product? So, uh, uh, my first uh, episode started in January this year in English, and actually, I was amazed that the uh, a lot of the uh, streaming stations were very interested in the Spanish show because they didn't have anything in Spanish. Right. If you think about it, I mean, it, it, you don't see it. And the, uh, the Hispanics here in the United States, you know, they're pretty affluent. They have a lot of money. Uh, you know, well, you were at the Miami Boat Show. Sure. Like I was over there and I was amazed. I sold about seven boats uh, helping uh, my sponsor out. And, and it was just amazing. Wow. And, and you know, they got money. Uh-huh. So tell me about <laughs> the uh, tell me about the difference when you when you first were, were doing the stuff with with Bright House in, in English. And then when you first started to think about going to a Spanish TV show, like you, you were, what, what did you, did you change anything or did you do everything exactly the same? You just did it in Spanish or what, what well, was the, it, the process there? The big problem when you switch to Spanish is 
you don't have the availability like you do in English. In other words, I've got 155 captains in my computer that I use for a lot of my corporate stuff. So I got a lot of captains I can call up and, and do shows with. In Spanish, you have a very, there's not a lot of Spanish captains. And then you got some that have Spanish names that can't speak Spanish. <laughs> and you have some that, that say they're Spanish and they, it's terrible Spanish. You know, not that mine is fantastic, but I mean, it's just, so it kind of, it makes it tougher to do the Spanish shows than it does the American shows, so to speak, because I have such a, a broad selection on the American side where in Spanish, I have a doctor that I do a lot of shows with down in the and around Boca Grande and Pine Island, that he's a, a Spanish guy. And then I have a local guy that's a, a great angler, He, but he's not a captain, but he fishes all the time and he hunts all the time. And so, you know, a lot of the times where we go, when we go to Mrs., uh, we go to Louisiana, stuff like that, like the doctor just goes up there with me mm -hmm. because there ain't no Spanish people up there. Right. Now, some of my clients will go, uh, and they'll go do the trip with me, and some of them can speak Spanish, but uh, again, it's, it makes it a lot tougher than on the English side. But the other side to that is in Spanish, we have more fun than we do in English. <laughs> you do? Like the language, is, the language lends itself to, to more, more fun conversations? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, what, what it is, is and when, when I'm doing the show with, let's say I, I have you on the boat, and uh, let's say you're a novice or you, you're you know, just an average guy. You do something that's not right. All I can say is, Tom, you know, we do it this way and, and stuff like that. You, you got to be nice. Where in Spanish, uh, it's the culture. I can just say, Tom, stop being stupid about it <laughs> and do it this way. And you'll come back to me with a smart remark, but it's not being rude. It's the culture. And I guess that's why a lot of the people like to, although they're like me, they're bilingual. I love to see the show in Spanish because of the kidding that goes on. Yeah. You can do that. And it's not uh, being disrespectful or, or anything like that. You just do things in Spanish that you normally don't do on the American shows because it, it might not sound right. I got you. So what about your, what about your history with the Spanish language? How did you become so, so fluent in Spanish? Well, I was born in Cuba, but I came over when I was a year old and I grew up in Ybor City. And in my household, I was not allowed to speak English because my mother said, you're going to school to learn the American language. When you come home, we don't want you to, we don't, don't want you to know the Spanish language. So when you walked in the front door in my house, you had to speak Spanish. I mean, if you came in with a cut and needed four stitches bleeding all over the place and you were screaming in English, my mother wouldn't pay attention to me hmm. until I switched wow. over to Spanish. And I guess that's what helped me over the years to, you know, um, what got me so hooked on fishing was uh, when I was about four and a half years old, my uncle came from Cuba to live with us. And uh, he loved to fish and he was 18. Mm -hmm. He lived with us for a little over a year before he got a, an invitation from Uncle Sam back in the 50s. It was a little thing called the draft. Yeah. And of course, he was 18, came to the U.S., was living with us. He got drafted when he was about 19 and a half. But he got me so hooked on fishing at the age of about four and a half that uh, I never put a rod down. And 
when kids were getting in trouble in the summer, uh, you know, it, kids now have everything. But if you go back to my era when I was growing up in the 50s, I mean, first thing, I, we didn't have a TV in my house till I was about eight years old, mm-hmm. couldn't afford it. Uh, what we did is you rode around. It, it, okay, my mother didn't have enough money. This was, you know, poor neighborhoods, let's face it. Uh, you couldn't. You couldn't buy. I wanted a bicycle for Christmas. My mother couldn't afford my father a brand new bike mm. because the only place you could buy one was Sears. Yeah, and Sears wanted like twenty one dollars. Well, that's a fortune. So there was a guy in the neighborhood that would go around getting old bicycles, and he would sand them down, spray paint them with a can of paint, clean them up a little bit, and he sold them for six. <laughs> and that's what I got for Christmas one year. Nice, a black bicycle and i was the most proud kid but i wasn't the only one everybody in the neighborhood that's the way it was you didn't look at somebody nobody had a new bike nobody could afford a new bike so when we started fishing uh uh he got me so hooked the way i i got really hooked my first summer with him uh and everybody knows boca grand i presume Mm -hmm. and back in the 50s the old phosphate dock was actually there now you see a lot of TV shows where they go where the phosphate dock used to be in the pilings and they get all these Goliath grouper and all that. When I was growing up, the phosphate dock was actually there. It, it was like a pier. The middle of the pier was covered and had a conveyor belt. And the ship would anchor uh, dock at the end of this long pier. And, you know, they would load it, whatever. Well, uh, I didn't know why because you were so young until you get a little older and you realize this, but... Uh, we would go almost every Friday night after work. My uncle would be ready to go. And uh, oh, before I get to that is that one of the best baits in those days, which nobody uses anymore because it's too expensive, you couldn't afford it anyway, was shedder crabs. <laughs> Are you familiar with that? Yeah, yeah. You know, the soft shell. Yeah, but people may, maybe other people stuff. aren't. So that's a, that's a soft yeah. shell crab? It's a soft shell crab inside the hard shell. Mm-hmm. It's called a shedder because it's going to get ready to shed its shell then it's a soft shell crab. Then it becomes what we used to call a cardboard crab because it's kind of in between. And then it became a, a hard crab again. Well, the way you caught these things back in those days, uh, in Tampa, you got Bayshore Boulevard, which is about seven miles long. Uh, my uncle used to, we used to go through Three Boar City. And as they were re-roofing the homes, all those homes had tin roofs. So he would go through and, and pick up all the, the good pieces of tin that one rusted out, take them home, and he cut them 30 inches long with the tin snip. And you made like a half-moon circle mm-hmm. out of this little piece of tin. And he would go out to Bayshore Boulevard at low tide at night, and, and you would put these tins in there right about, uh, in about at low tide, you want them to be about six inches underwater at the top of the tin. High tide might be two foot deep. And he would put, put them about every 10 feet apart for about three blocks and then stagger them and come back the other way. He must have had at one time like 100 tins out there. Wow. And then we would go, and he would go there at night, low tide. And I would go with him in the summer. And you walk through there at night with a Coleman lantern and two galvanized buckets, a little one that was tied to me, and the big one was tied to him. And you went to every tin and lifted up and scooped it. Well, there was either a shedder crab 
or a soft-shell crab. Because what happens when the crab gets ready to molt, it has to find protection because when it's soft, anything can eat it. Mm-hmm. So what they do, they get under the tin, cover both ends of the tin up, and it's they were they were there until they got hard, and then they just moved back out. So when you picked up the tin, if there was a crab there, it had to be a shedder. It was going to be a soft shell. So if it was a soft shell, we put it in my little bucket that was floating behind me. The shedder crab, he would put it in the big, and then we'd take it home. And what he would do is, my mother hated him for this. He'd get the bottom crisper in the old refrigerator, and you put a layer of damp newspaper, and you would put a layer of crabs, a layer of damp newspaper, a layer of crabs. And by Friday night, he would have about three to four dozen nice shitter crabs, and we would have two dozen soft shells to eat. <laughs> then the, the big thing was uh, somebody in the, in the family gave him an old Nash Rambler. In those da- and in those days, you know, we have these fancy coolers now, these Yetis and mm-hmm. Zingles and Igloo. In those days, you know, it, there was the old Coleman metal that rusted out. So what he would do is he'd take out the back seat of the old Nash Rambler and he'd put a cushion in the middle of my hump for me to sit on. And on each side of me, he would have two 20 gallons, a gallon of garbage can, galvanized can. And he would go to the fish market Friday on the way home and they would fill these two garbage cans up with flake ice. And I would sit in the middle between these two with a blanket. And <laughs> him and his buddy would sit in the front seat. And we usually had two more cars that followed us. And we'd go to Placida and get the last ferry boat because there was no bridges in those days to Boca Grande. We, we got the last ferry boat into Boca Grande. And here's the part that it was really, it took me a few years to catch on. There was a guy in Ybor City in those days, uh, and I'm sure in, in most towns, I guess, uh, you had uh, the, the laundry man used to come around the neighborhood and uh, pick up your laundry and, and then leave it for the people who had a little more money, just like the milkman did. You know, you mm-hmm. had a little container. And this guy was called Chino Lavandero, which means that the Chinaman, there was a laundry guy. But the guy was an American. I don't know why they called him this. But he was the biggest drunk. <laughs> I can remember this. And they would take him with them. Every weekend in the summer, I would go. This guy would go in one of the cars, and they'd take like three or four bottles of rum with him. But what happened was we would go out there to the to to get the book of Graham, he would play cards and drink with the security guy at the phosphate dock, and we would go on the dock and fish. You weren't supposed I mean, to? I don't know. <laughs> I don't ever want to ask. Okay. Right, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> but in those days, you know, that's how you did things. So the, I remember we used to get there about 9.30 because the, the boat got there about 9 o'clock, and they played cards about 4.30 in the morning, and we would fish. And I mean, in those days with shedder crab, it was nothing to catch a, a 40 pound redfish or a 30 pound grouper off the dock. But the problem was, if anybody knows Boca Grand Pass, that current is terrible there. I mean, just terrible. So what they did is they got a piece of an old anchor line and they tie it around my waist and they, and they tie it to the railing with just enough rope that if I fell over, my feet would dangle in the water, but somebody could grab the rope and bring me back up on the top. How many times did you fall over? I never fell over, but I can tell you one day 
I think this was going on for that first summer, towards the end of the summer. One of his buddies was over. And you remember that he was, he was 18, 19, and his buddies are in the same age. Jokingly, he didn't, they didn't know my mother was in the other room, and she could overhear the conversation. And he's telling my uncle, boy, I hope Sejito Sturgill never falls over. We have to bring him up with, oh, man, my mother heard that. <laughs> she chased my uncle out the front door, and I, I thought she was going to kill him. <laughs> but that's how I grew up. So uh, after he got drafted and went into the Army, uh, I had a couple of years that I had to do everything on my own. But that was okay because all summer long, I lived uh, on the corner of 9th Avenue and 21st Street, which is right now everybody comes to, to Ybor City. It ain't the Ybor City that I grew up in. Now it's all bars and, you know, nightclubs. When I was growing up, uh, you had Walgreens, Crest, you had a Bill Clancy store, you had the, the shoe store, and, and you had the a lot of the stores that sold linoleum in those days because those old, I lived in a shotgun house, and you know what a shotgun house mm -hmm. is. Yeah. Yeah, but I, tell I tell tell people what that what it is. We have them in Key West. House. Yeah, and, and I didn't know what a shotgun house was until I got older and somebody says, Oh, you lived in a shotgun house. But all it was 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 a a house that the it had a wall down the middle and two doors on each side of this. When you went up the, the you went up to the porch and there was a door on the right, door on the left. And all, you opened the first that door, you had a living room. There was another door, it was the first bedroom. You opened another door, it was the second bedroom. And then when you opened the other door, that was the kitchen. And in the kitchen, there was two doors. One on the left, that was a bathroom door, right in the kitchen. And the other door took you to the backyard. And the reason they called it a shotgun house is you can open all the doors and, and shoot a shotgun through the front door and go out straight to the back. Mm -hmm. and, and it was a duplex, but that's the way they were made. I wonder why, why that why that was that that was so popular because those those you see those in Key West too still to this day you know it, you can see the shotgun it, houses. It was cheap to build. Yeah, yeah, that's probably and they were what it all was. Wood frame, and that's why you had uh, I think there was like three stores. And some of the buildings, they're all still there. Lalonian was real popular because, you know, the wood floors, you, 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 they, all you did is put a piece of Lalonian on it. And about three years later, you wore it out and the guy would come over. You tell him the size. It would come over, take the old one out and roll the new one on. It wasn't glued on or nothing. I mean, mm -hmm. you can understand. Basics, you know. I mean, in those days, uh, we used to use uh, perfection heaters, which was a round heater, kerosene heater. Had a wick in the middle and glass in the middle, so you use it also as a light at night. Hmm. And there was two in my house, one for my bedroom and one for my parents' bedroom. And if you went to watch or you went to the living room, you took it with you. If you went to the kitchen, you took it with you. There was no central heat. There was no air. There was nothing. I mean, remember, this is <laughs> this is Ebor City. But I, I, I wouldn't trade anything that I had in those days um, the school that I went to, it, it was most holy name. It, it was a little Catholic school. It was about four blocks from the house. And this hard Cuban, hard-headed Cuban, I thank them for the person I am today and my parents because they, in those days, it isn't like now, they didn't put up with any bull. I mean, you were doing something wrong in the classroom and that nun would look at you, 
move her little finger. That means go outside the door. <laughs> and you got the living daylight slapped out of you. And you didn't go home and tell your mother that the nun hit you. Because if I did that, then my mother would beat the crap right. out of me because I did something wrong. And I, I remember that, especially during the summer months, you know, April and May, uh, those nuns, the convent was right next to the little school. The school just, you know, when I graduated, there was 13 graduated from the eighth grade, seven girls and six boys. But the nuns would have to work around the convent of the little, you know, the little plants and all that stuff. So every week, one of the grades, and we started with like the fourth grade, fourth graders would go in and help the nun that Saturday for from 8.30 to about 12 o'clock around the yard. And then the next week was the fifth grader. Well, I remember one year, you know, this Cuban decided, oh, I wanted to do something else. And I didn't show up for my day to help the nun. <laughs> and uh, about one o'clock, Sister Mary comes walking to my house because everything's walking distance. We didn't even have a car in those days or anything like that. And she comes in, of course, my mother says right away, oh, Sister Mary, you know, in Spanish, come on in, come on in. And they're talking and she says, everything okay? She says, well, Sergio didn't show up today. He was supposed to help out. And when my mother called, my, my father never would touch me. My mother's the one that beat the heck out of me. When my mother called, you came running. And in those days, you know, it isn't like now. There's no cell phones or none. You open the front door, she screamed my name, and buddy, it, it, we passed it on to each other. If I couldn't hear it, somebody else heard it, they would pass it on down like a, like a cell phone. Yeah. I come running, and I saw Sister Mary, and I said, oh, crap. And uh, my mother said, you didn't show up today. I said, oh, I know, I know. So she tells Sister Mary, do you still need help in the yard? She said, I could use them for a little while. So my mother said, okay. But now here's the, the, the part that that's why I never skipped another Saturday in my life. <laughs> my mother didn't just say, go with Sister Mary. My mother came up to me, grabbed my ear, handed the ear to the nun. The nun grabbed my ear. And for four blocks, she walked me down to the convent with my ear in her hand like this. And my buddies are looking, oh, look at that. Well, let me tell you, that never happened again. This little Cuban, when my Saturday came up, <laughs> I was there with bells on. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's made me the person I am today. You know, that it's, it's the culture. Uh, in those days, you know, my mother said, the nun's always going to be right. Remember that. Because the nun's not going to do something to you unless you didn't do what you were supposed to do. And in my house, buddy, <laughs> my mother was the law. Yeah. You think that, again, uh, do you think that that helped you with, helped with work you ethic? With, or like or, you've mentioned it a couple of times that it's, it helped you to become the person that you are. What, what, what else do you think that helped you with? You know, coming from in, in those days, you know, I, I don't know what I think people were getting paid. You know, like I said, I was too young to know, but um, and people were getting paid maybe, I don't know, 40 cents an hour. Is that, I guess, yeah, 40, 50 cents an hour. So, I mean, everything was expensive. Uh, to go to the movies, the Ritz Theater was right there. There was a, a Spanish theater and, and a Ritz Theater, and it's still there on the corner of 15th Street and 7th Avenue, and it was 15 cents to go in. Well, you know, that's... That's a lot of money. So I, I, I think between the nuns, my mother, and God, 
uh, I met some old man, and I don't remember how I met him to this day, but I just remember half a Tampa cigar factory was right catty corner to us on Ninth Avenue. There was a lot of cigar factories in the area, but mm-hmm. half a Tampa was the closest one. And I met this guy, and this old man, and he just told me on Fridays on the way home from school, he always told me, go to the third truck door. There was like four or five truck doors where the trucks were back in. And he said, knock four times. And I would knock four times. And the door would open up, and this huge truck door would open up about maybe two feet. And this box would get shoved out. I think I met this guy. I saw his face one time in my life. But that's the way. And in there would be anywhere between 10 to 20 or 25 broken cigars that came off the machine because those were being machine made. And I would take them home. And the ones that were really bad, I'd take them apart. The ones that were just bent, i straighten them out. And the ones that were kind of worse, i straighten them out as much as I could. Take leaves from the other ones, lick it, lick it around that cigar. Now, in those days, cigars were a nickel. So I would stand in the corner of 7th Avenue and 21st Street and sell the cigars for a penny on Friday <laughs> afternoon. And I could sell 8, 10, 12, sometimes 15. Well, there was my money. My mother would give me my 15 cents. I had no money for my Coke and, and my popcorn sometimes. Uh, so it was great. I mean, you know, like I said, so I think God was watching me all the time doing that. And then when my uncle came back from the Army, uh, uh, he lived with us for about another year, and then he got married. But again, at that time, I was a little older. I was probably about nine by then, uh, closer to 10. We would come back from fishing. And uh, uh, in those days, you could black drum now down here. You know, they're kind of limited. People say, ah. In those days, black drum, people ate them. Mm-hmm. And we would go to Gandy Bridge and fish all night Friday night or all night Saturday. And we would catch 50, 20 big black drum and some redfish and some trout. And he, on, on the next morning, like Sunday morning, he would put a bunch of ice in my wagon and throw a bunch of fish in there. And I would go walking up to 12th Avenue and about, and, and all through that neighborhood. And I would sell probably $3 worth of fish. Wow. Well, you know, $3 in those days. That was the day's pay. And, and then he would give me a quarter. <laughs> hey, I had money for next week to go to the movies. And, and so, I mean, I guess that's how I grew up, uh, having to appreciate what, what a dollar was worth, what a mm-hmm. nickel was worth. And, and having to work for it as well. That's right. And my mother's philosophy was, you don't ever take anything unless you earn it. If somebody gives you something, you work for it. Because, and, you know, you can make it on your own, but you got to do it. And the other thing she used to tell me is, remember, you're not going to catch any fish. You're not going to make any money sitting on the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> that was her thing. And it's true. So, so, you know, I guess as I grew up and became, went into the business world and the corporate world, uh, a lot of things helped me to get to where I'm at today. Uh, I had one of the best after that when I went to my first real full-time job uh, in a wholesale company and I was working in uh, in the warehouse and I went up to the counter. Eventually I became salesman and eventually I became vice president of the company. The chairman of the board, I remember his office was like downstairs and it was one of those dark offices. 
with all this mahogany in those days. This is like 68, 69. Mm-hmm. And he, he kind of got a liking to me. And like I said, I think this is God's always helping me out. Uh, uh, he would call me sometime. He knew I was busting my chop at helping the clients that would come in to pick up stuff and all that that needed them in a hurry. And he would tell my boss, I need to see Sergio for a little bit. So, well, you know, chairman of the board, yes, sir. I would go down there and he said, uh, would you do me a favor, Sergio? I said, yeah. He said, would you go down here and get me a, a goody goodies hamburger for me? And he'd give me a $5 bill. And he'd give me the keys to his brand new Pontiac Bonneville. <laughs> and, and then he said, and, and buy you one. You know, and that was his way of saying, hey, thank you for what you do. But he had, I'll never forget, in the back of his desk, this huge picture of a boat sinking. It looked like, like the Titanic sinking. And I always looked at that big ship. And, I, and he was always trying to teach me something. That was his way of doing stuff. And then about the fourth, fifth time I was in there, he says, you're always looking at that picture, don't you? He says, that picture's to remind me of something. He says, and if, if, if I can ever remind you of something, I want you to think of that picture. And he says, you know what that picture represents? I said, yeah, it's a boat sinking. He said, no. He says, when you're in business, remember, a small leak can sink a big ship. Watch your expenses. Mm. Watch the way you move money, how you do it with money. Because that can cost you your life, your business. And you know what? It's true. After that, all my life, I was always careful of what I did and I I didn't my mother's thinking was don't worry what the neighbors got what you have make sure you can afford it and that you feel comfortable don't worry that he's got a bigger house or he's got a nicer car that isn't important important is that you can live your life and feel comfortable <laughs> and I took all these little things as I was growing up and I applied it as I as I worked and in, into my fishing part of the business and you know I got my captain's license and 75, but I didn't want to do charters. I got forced into it by my friends because, you know, you're working all week, you go out on Saturday. And of course, in those days, it was all grouper fishing. It wasn't like tackle. And and, and in the 70s and and 80s, uh, everybody everybody went offshore. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, number one is I tell everybody, okay, we're going to leave my house at, uh, at 5.30. Well, some guy used to show up at 6. So I got to the point and I said, I'm leaving at 5.30. If you're not here, you're not coming. And then it's Saturday. I knew I had to get home. You know, get home at a reasonable time. My wife wanted to go out. But she always had that one or two guys, or the, the, other, the three that went with me is, oh, come on, man. The bite's really good. Let's stay out another hour. Come on, come on. Then we get home at 6.30. My wife is waiting. The boat needed to be clean. All this fish. And, of course, Two guys, one guy was always very good, but the other two guys, oh, oh man, it's getting late. I got to get along, yeah. you know, this and that. And I finally said, you know what? And then they would complain. I mean, gas was, I think I was paying back in those days, like a buck a gallon back in the 80s, something like that, 80s or whatever. You know, you would burn 30 gallons, it was $24, and then $10 in bait and the truck. So I would say, look, guys, I spent, we spent 50 bucks today on an all-day grouper trip. My boat, my tackle, my truck, but I'll still split it four ways. So it's $12.50 apiece. 
and they would complain. <laughs> oh my God, Jesus. So finally one day I just, I said, you know what? That's it. I, I told this other guy, I said, I'm, I'm, so when they started calling me, I said, hey, the going rate now is $300 to do a, to go out. What? I said, hey, that's what my buddies are getting. The, the other captains, they're getting $300 a day. That's what we got to get. And, you know, and, and they kind of forced me into doing that. I still had one or two friends that we just go out. But I got rid of all these other friends that all they wanted to do was go out and on a, on a fishing trip and not pay right. anything. Right. And so is that how you made the transition into fishing all the time? With like, like that story and just kind of moving into now you're getting 300 well, a day for it. And no, no, you know, I had, a, uh, I've always had the last, you know, the two jobs. I only had three jobs in my life and the, that first company eventually sold out and I went to two other companies and, uh, God gave me this talent that I could motivate people and do stuff. So I actually became vice president of two different companies without a college education <laughs> because I had no money to go to college. Uh, the only knowledge I had was uh, hard knots from the street. But I, I could motivate people. I could increase sales and get things going. And in the, you know, in the 80s and 90s, companies could look at you and see that now you know, you got to have that little college paper. And I saw more people come through when I was running these companies with four years of education that didn't know beans. Mm. I mean, they had no idea. Uh, they just had a piece of paper. Right. So, and I think now it's, it's a lot harder to do it. But I, I always took care of my family. I, I figured, okay, the day I retire, I, I want to make sure that I can really enjoy what I'm doing. So, I did all of this kind of on the side for years. And then 18 years ago, you know, I finally said, okay, that's it. I just quit, walked off. What was that like to, to, to make that decision and make that jump? Man, let me tell you, it's tough. It's tough when for, for 30 something years, you never owned a car. You always got a, a company car every couple of years. They have an expense account. Your insurance was paid for, you know, making really good money and to say, I'm going to give all this up just to do fishing. But it's like my cardiologist uh, and my Spanish guy that does the TV show for me. It, we, we've been friends for 25 years. And he told me he, he's always after you, Sergio, your job is very stressful because it was, I mean, the part that I ran in the business, it, it kept me stressed out. Uh, he said, it's going to give you a heart attack. You need someday to do something different. And it was tough to make the change. But once I made the change, what made the transition easy was that I didn't owe any money. I was smart enough to pay everything. So the day I retired, everything I had was mine. I didn't have to get up in the morning and say, gee, how do I, how do I make a mortgage payment? Or how do I make a boat payment? Did, did you already have a boat? You had a boat already? Yeah. That's a big deal. I, I already, uh, I used to, that's one of the things I did for myself. I mean, I always, I, I was, I was hooked up with Mako back in the seventies and the local dealer. So about every three years I used to get a new Mako and, and, you know, kept swapping them out. And, uh, then I think right when I was still working, I got hooked up with Marine Max, uh, in their heydays before the, the 20, well, 2008 crash came. Mm -hmm. So for a bunch of years, 
I did a lot of stuff on the weekends. I helped them do some tournaments and helped them with the boat shows. And in return, they gave me a, a Boston Whaler to use every year. So that was a good swap. I mean, mm -hmm. they didn't pay me, but I got a free boat to use and I kept it at home. And, and then when I, when I retired, uh, I already had the money to buy a brand new boat. And that's what I did. And then after that, I got hooked up with a big sponsor. And, and now it's like, you know, just every year I get a boat. But that, what I tell everybody, because at these boat shows that I'm at, I got a lot of these young kids that come over and say, hey, man, I want to retire, Captain. I want to quit my job. I got my captain's license. I said, don't do that. I said, because first thing is make sure that you're settled. Things are like you want it. Make sure you have money put away. I, remember, you're going to have 50000 in the bank. You're going to use 50000 if you quit. Right. And start. You know, everybody thinks, oh, I'm a captain. I'm going to charge six, $700 now. And, oh, I'm going to get rich. No, you don't. I mean, you got it in the Tampa Bay area, for example, because of C-School, there's over 360 captains. They have a captain's license. Right. A lot of them part-time. I think full-time there's maybe 80 or 90. But when you figure when I got my captain's license in 1975, it, I went with two other guys, and that made four of us in Tampa Bay. So it's really tough now uh, if you're getting started, unless you already got a built-in, you know. Right. I've got I got all my clients over the years, and that's what I tell them: you got to build your client base, and then uh, anytime there's a crunch, I see it. Guys losing their boats, they lose their trucks. I've seen some get divorces because their wife won't put up with it, and, and it's a shame. Uh, it's a wonderful life, but got to make sure that you're prepared for it. It's a wonderful life if, if, if you have it set up properly. Like you're saying that um, you didn't have any debt and that you were in a position to move forward. A lot of people get into the position to where they've got to work, mm, you know, 24 days a month to cover their nut of this new boat and this new truck that they have. And you can do that, except that it's hard to get 24 days a month for somebody that's just starting out. And, and, you know, it also helps if you've got a very loving uh, lo loving and trusting wife. You mm -hmm. know, she worked. Mm -hmm. She retired from the VA. So she put in 42 years. And she's the one that told me 18 years ago, I'm going to work for another five or six years. Quit. I want you to do it now while you're young enough that you can really enjoy it and, and not wait till you, know, you get much older. So, yeah. you know, the, the secret is make sure that, First thing is, this is what you want to do. Uh, what I've seen over the years, too, because we all love to fish, and, and some of these younger kids, they're thinking, man, fishing, fishing. It's totally different <laughs> to start doing charters. Yeah. Because now you're not fishing, you're catering. And, and to me, to be a good captain, you're just not a captain. you got to be an entertainer. Right. That's such an important thing to, to think about. And, and, you know, when a lot of people um, ask me about getting into guiding and stuff like that, it's like, okay, first, first thing that I start to talk to them about is, you know, do you enjoy teaching people? Do you enjoy like teaching people and entertaining people? Because that's really what, what it is. You, you will, if you're looking to fish, 
becoming a charter captain is the best way to not fish as much as you're currently fishing because you just don't, you don't, you don't fish a good captain, good guide fishes very, very little. I mean, especially if you're fishing 300 days a year, you maybe got a few days that you could actually go fishing and on the charters, you're not, you're not fishing. I mean, maybe occasionally you're hooking a fish and giving it to somebody, but for the most part, you're not, you're not doing that. So a lot of people get discouraged with guiding because they thought they were going to be out there fishing and it turns out they hadn't touched a rod in, in, in weeks, you know? And, uh, but what you're talking about is a, is such a good point about being an entertainer and being somebody that is, is there for the customer in, in a bigger capacity than just catching fish. Like you are there to entertain. Yeah. Cause it, you know, the, the biggest thing is when you go out on your own and it, let's say the average guy, he goes out there every Saturday. Well, you know, he goes on Saturday, catches some fish. And sometimes he does real good. Sometimes he does slow. But when you're taking somebody out and you're charging them money, you got to try to give them the best time you can. And, you know, you can't make fish bite. I've had days where people think I, I can walk on water because we've gotten to a snook spot and sat there for an hour and 30 minutes and caught 35 snook. And I've had days where an hour and a half into the trip and I got one fish. So, mm -hmm. you know, when things start to slow down, then you got to start thinking, how are you going to entertain these people? So how well, do you do it? How do you, how do you entertain the you people? Know, and what is your, like, I have like a, when I, when I think about guided trips, I have like a hierarchy and like, one is safety. Everybody's going to, we're going to go out there. We're going to come back safe. Nobody's going to get hurt. The second is that everybody has a good time. Right. And then way down the list somewhere is that we catch fish. And the, if, if, if you're having, if all of these first ones are, are, if you're taking care of all these first ones, then you're end up, you're going to end up catching more fish because as soon as somebody gets hurt, you got to go back to the dock. As soon as, as soon as somebody's not having a good time, they're never coming back to you. I, I would just wonder what you're, what you, how you think about that. Well, I, I, first thing is when they get in my boat, I tell them, look, it, ain't, it isn't going to sink. And if, if God forbid, if the boat breaks in half, I said, just jump over the side and walk to shore. <laughs> I said, but here's where the life preservers are. I, although I do probably all my charters, I, I, I'm not into offshore charters. I strictly, I like backcountry, the flats and I mean, I, I go out, me personally, offshore to film, to do some snapper shows and all that. But I love the snook and the redfish, and I like to do some kingfish near shore. I always tell them, here's where the life preservers are. I have my own. I got an eeper. I, I kind of tell them, look, in case something goes wrong, this is how you do it. This is how you're going to start the motor. This is this. This is that in case something happens to me. And then, then from there, then, you know, we go through. But a lot of times... Uh, you know, we're on the mangroves and uh, and you get people that don't know what they're doing. And you got to understand this. This is where I see a lot of captains. I've had people go out with me and say, man, I really enjoy going out with you. I went out with this one guy. And he started cussing at me because he told me you have to know how to word things sometimes to get your message across. So uh, and this happens to me quite a bit. So I use this technique a lot. When we're fishing along the mangroves and it's a little windy and uh, I, I like to use a, a like a popping cork sometimes or, or just the, the white bait. I, I always tell them when I get to the spot, because you can tell the client right away how, it, how he's going to be. You can tell the guy that, number one, you got the guy that lies to you. 
He says, oh, he knows how to fish. And when you give him the rod and he holds it upside down, you say, oh-oh. And then you got the guy that says, no, Captain, I fish very little. Or I got the guy that says, no, you know, I don't saltwater fish, but I'd strive for bass fish and do all this other stuff. So you know how to treat them. But I, first thing is when I get to the mangroves and I know the wind's to our back, and I tell them, guys, from my experience all these years, let me tell you, I've never caught any snook on the mangroves. They've all been <laughs> under the mangroves, in the water. So they kind of look at me and then start to laugh. But what I'm telling them is, don't cast high, don't cast hard. But I'm telling them in a way that it's it's funny to them and it kind of stays in their mind because all of a sudden, I'm not telling them not to do this. I'm just telling them, hey, this is what's going to happen. You're not going to catch any fish. And same way when we do a lot of dock fishing this time of the year because we get these negative tides. So we catch a lot of red fish under residential docks. Mm -hmm. And it's the first thing I do when I get the boat there. I like to... Uh, a lot of the captains will get it on the outside of the dock. But what I find is, especially in the older neighborhoods, although there's new homes there now, they, they tore down the old homes. Back in the 60s when that area was being built, there was no EPA or nothing. So the builders would just dump a lot of rubble right there. And actually then they, they would build the dock on top of it. Mm -hmm. So I know where these rubble piles are, and I know that's going to hold the snook and some redfish and flounder and sheephead. So I, I tell them the same thing. I, and I don't like to fish the end because I find that most of the stuff is in underneath the dock. So what I do is I actually use my power pole and an anchor. I'll drop the anchor in between the two docks. And, and I don't know how it is in other areas, but in my area, the, the houses aren't that far apart. I mean, mm -hmm. lots are not that big. So there's probably maybe 50 feet between the dock. Maybe 70. Mm -hmm. most. So I get... I drop the anchor in the middle, on the edge of the little channel. I back up the boat between the two docks, and I get almost 10 feet from, from their shoreline, and I drop the power poles. Now, they can fish either side of the, either one of the docks, but I tell them the same thing. Guys, all my years of experience, I've never caught any fish on top of the dock. They're all under the dock, yeah. under the dock. And, and it's funny because once in a while, you, the guy will say, Oh, Captain, I think I really messed up. <laughs> you know, at that point, I think with some other captains, especially with a guy that's done it two or three times, you know, they get mad and they get, you can't. So what I do is I tell them, look, <clears throat> it's tough to do. I, I, I still go up on the dock myself. Why don't you let me get it under there for you until you think you've got the hang of it, and then you try it, but this way... I can give you more fishing time instead of tying time. You know what? Most of them, uh, you know, they'll get the hang of it. And, and they watch me. And I tell them, look, it's soft. Swing it sideways with this. Some docks are higher. It's easier to get under. I got some docks that are, you know, five feet from the water, the bottom of the dock. And it's tough for somebody not used to it. The thing is, you're educating them. You're not getting them upset. And, and they're learning anyway. So, and I have fun with them. And then after you get to know them for a while, you can get to know the personalities. Uh, you can tell after they've been on the boat an hour. You got some that are couples sometimes, they're more serious type. So you kind of go that way. Then you have some that like to joke and tell jokes and, and do that. So you kind of, you know, go. Yeah, go you got to read the crowd, just like yeah, a comedian. 
you know, you have, to, right. you have to kind of read the room, read the room. and understand what you're, who you're talking to and what, what kind of trip that they want. And then a lot of times, you know, like, you know, and it's, and I'm I'm not going to sit here and say, Oh, every trip I do is fantastic. I can have some bad trips. I mean, it happens. And at that point, you know, you're trying to entertain you, you kind of try to get them to talk a little bit, you know, what, what, what do you do? You're down here on vacation. And then that, that gets it opened up and that gives you a little bit of breathing time to maybe see what you can do different to get the bike to turn on. Or sometimes you just have to move. And uh, I've moved 25 feet, not getting in a bite here, move 25 feet down the road and, and they're biting like crazy. Mm-hmm. So, so on your, on your TV show, um, what's the, uh, what's the format that you're, that you're using? Or is it an educational show or more of kind of adventure? It's, it's a little bit of everything. We, we try to, to educate a little bit about the tackle that we're using and why we're using that. And then, we, you know, sometimes talk about the water temperature and how it affects the fishing, what time of the year. And, and then to me is, it gets boring if you see somebody just pulling one fish after another. I mean, it's boring. I, I mean, how many fish do you want to see somebody else pull out? So we, we try to catch some fish, and in between that, talk about the, the methods and the baits that we're using. and everything. So we're trying to educate, but also watch them us catch some fish. And, we've, and we're not one that we have put some shows out there that has been a real slow day, and we said it. It was a real slow day. We really had to work hard, but we made it happen. We didn't get 25 fish today. We got six fish, but we had to work hard. And this is the reason why. We had this cold front come through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have this pretty blue sky. We have a high pressure. We start talking about negative tides, what causes negative tides down here, how it affects the fishing, the barometer. So you kind of, when you have a bad day, you try to educate them. Educate them a little bit on, on why it's a bad day, right? Not just because right. you know the fish aren't didn't want to bite. Also, the weather played a factor on why the fish aren't biting. Yeah. But yeah. in between all of that, my goal has always been for about the last twenty years. And last year, I've been pushing it really hard, and it worked out good. I'm trying to get kids involved, young kids, because the future of what we do is kids. Uh, but it's, how, how are you doing that? How are you, how are you getting kids involved? <clears throat> well, a, a lot of the boat shows, I, I manage the seminars and everything. So I'm trying to gear somewhere. We encourage the parents and we do one for the parents and the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year in June, Picnic Island over here, which is a, little, a place where the, there's a little beach inside Tampa Bay and a little fishing pier, a little boat ramp. Uh, I did an, uh, a five-hour fishing class hands-on on the beach area and actually we had a lot of good a lot of the sponsors donated product uh, uh, we had uh, the mayor of tampa come and help the fwc cca and they all set up booths and i i gave away 153 rods and reels to kids and fed them all and their parents the only catch was it was all free. You had to be with your child. Mm-hmm. I got. I didn't want the parent coming over and dumping their nine or ten year old kid. Oh, for three or four hours. I don't know. The idea was 
I'm trying to get the kids away from the computers, from from the stupid things, and and expose them to the outdoors. It, and I got so many nice emails the following month after that. From especially, I was amazed. A lot of the mothers saying their daughters were really mm-hmm. hooked on fishing, and now they kept asking their parents, "When we're going to go? Can you take me this Saturday?" And this is what I wanted. I wanted to get kids from playing those games on the computer out of that room and get them to do something with their time. That's what kept me out of trouble when I was growing up in Ybor City. I was so focused on the fishing side of it that I didn't have time to get in trouble. Right. A lot of my friends <laughs> got in trouble in Ybor City because it was nothing to do. And the same thing here. If you get kids occupied doing something they like, That'll keep them out of trouble. It's when they have too much free time. And to me, I hate to say it, people are going to get mad at me. A lot of these games that they're playing, they're killing. You know, it's all this war stuff. Yeah. Well, like my mother would say from the old school, you're, you're kind of indoctrinating the kids that, hey, they're killing something all the time. So if a kid's a kind of borderline, maybe, <laughs> I mean... This is my thinking. A borderline, this could kind of just trigger him to go over this over the top. I'm probably hundred percent off. But get him away from those games and get him something that is healthy for him. Outdoors. Outside, outdoors. Outdoors is is really an incredible um I don't know, call it what you want. It's a tool, it's medicine, it is quality time it's you can call it a million different things but it is so important and the way that you grew up the way that i grew up people of of uh you know if you're over if you're over 40 you basically grew up outside without a phone without any communication with your parents for the entire day i mean i would just ride my bike all over the place everywhere and i was just supposed to be back by dinner time that's it and, uh, you know, it's not, it's not really like that as much, but I don't, I don't know that it was better necessarily, but I do think that, that I was certainly much more in touch with, with the natural world than a lot of kids today. Um, and I think it's really help, really helpful to get people outside. That's, that's for certain. And fishing is a great, is a great tool for that. Uh, to get them outside and get them exposed because you're learning so much about so many different things. You're learning about the bait. You're learning about the fish. You're learning about the the plants. You're learning about, you know, the water, everything. You're learning about it all. And it's, it's interesting. And even if they just sit there like little kids, just sit there and play in the bait well, that's fine. You know, that's cool. Play in the bait well. Grab the shrimp. Grab the pilchards. Whatever you want to do. As long as you're out here and we're together, that's, that's important and awesome. Um, what, what I tell a lot of the parents is, you know, <clears throat> not every kid is born to be a baseball player or a football player. They don't have the talent or a soccer player, but any kid can be an angler. That's right. You don't need a talent to fish. It's natural. Mm-hmm. And it's lifelong, too. It's you can lifelong. do it until you're deep into your 90s, deep into your 90s. You can continue fishing. Um, that's awesome, man. You got so many great stories and, and, uh, and, and had such an interesting childhood and, and all based in fishing. It's cool. And I'm sure that a lot of people are going to want to check out your show. How, how would people, um, see your show, listen to your podcast? Well, they, they can go to, uh, 
I'm on Waypoint. I then go to Waypoint. It's uh, Fishing Adventures Florida. Mm-hmm. I then go to YouTube, Fishing Adventures Florida. My live show on Monday nights is called Florida West Coast Fishing Report. And that's on the Facebook page and it's on YouTube. And it stays on YouTube. And, and that's basically, I have about six captains, seven captains that send videos in of what's going on uh, up and down the West Coast. And we have a guest on, like you're going to be on next month with us. Uh, we got Flip Pallet coming up, I think, next month. We've had uh, Bouncer Smith. So, again, it's just like what you're doing. We're trying to bring experience from the outside that's maybe not local to us, that's fun. At the same time, we're also telling them, hey, on the Florida West Coast Fishing Report, what's going on on the West Coast. So if they're going out this weekend, next weekend, they'll, they got an idea where the bait is, what's biting, what's moving, what's leaving, uh, everything else. Gotcha. But other than that, I mean, you know, it's just, I just love what I'm doing. I, I, I don't do that many charters anymore. I, I got my corporate accounts and all that. I spend more time now. I'm working on trying to get this kids thing going again. Uh, the biggest hurdle that you find is not, I would do a kids thing every every Saturday if I could in the summer. It's, God, it's the paperwork. Involved. You think that, hey, you want to do this? Well, for me to do this at Picnic Island, first, you have to get the, the city to let you do it. Then they want to charge you for using the space to do this. <laughs> On there, good thing that the mayor waived that for me. She said, "No, you don't know." But then you still got to take a bond out, which cost me like four hundred dollars to, to to be able to host it. Then you got to put everything together. I have great captains. I had eighteen captains there last year, so there was never more than than six or seven kids in the group. So we we, we didn't have we weren't trying to teach them, and and each captain walked them through how to throw a little bait net, how to cast, you know, all the CCH taught them about the fish and and all the information. The FWC was there. They loved to see the FWC because we had two officers there. Of course, they had their guns. They had one of their inflatable boats, and that got the kids excited. Uh, The mayor being there, I think that helped to bring the parents because the parents probably wanted to meet the mayor. Mm -hmm. So that kind of help bring more kids in and by the time we got through i think we did a good job so i'm trying to work on it again for this summer to do a, a saturday thing because um, again if if i can get 10 20 of those kids turned on to being outdoor that makes me feel good that's awesome yeah well and, you know, best of luck to that and uh you know if, if it anytime you get that going and we can uh put the news out there for you please let me know i'd be happy to to do that. And, uh, cause that, that is the, the most important thing is getting the kids involved and, and also getting the kids involved with their parents. You know, there's a lot of non-fishing families out there that don't have any history of fishing whatsoever. And all it takes is one little weekend, like what you're, what you're doing to get someone started to where they feel comfortable. Oh, okay. Well, this isn't as intimidating as I thought it was going to be. Like we can just go out here and catch a few snappers off the dock, or we can, you know, catch some bluegills in a pond or we can catch whatever. And um, that may be the start of, you know, somebody spending their entire life doing it and, and, and teaching hundreds of other people how to fish. And, you know, it's not all just about catching fish. Uh, some of the things that I used to enjoy, and I, and I try, 
hey, you can take the kids out and say, hey, let, let's go catch fiddler crabs to go catch the sheephead. Yeah. And you get the kids out there chasing the little fiddler crabs, putting them in a little bucket, you know. It's all part of it. So it's not just getting them a rod and reel in their hand and putting a, and putting a piece of bait in the water. It's a lot of the little things that can lead up to it, you know, yeah. get, catching your own little bait, uh, little minnows off the shore, getting a little net, get them a little three-foot net that they can throw, and they get excited. That makes them, I think it kind of turns them on even more because now, hey, I caught this bait, yeah, and I caught a fish with the bait that I caught. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a huge deal, man. That's great. When you were saying that, I was remembering my little three-foot net that I had when I was a kid, and uh, I would just go out there and throw that net. I'd catch and release everything. <laughs> like I'd catch them and just let them go and then throw the net again and catch some more and let them go and throw the net again, you know, and just throw that net all day long. I mean, I always keep a little three and a little four footer here because if I got a bunch of kids, uh, I'll teach them how to throw it. I, I enjoy It's just the expression on a kid's face. They're so happy. I don't see that when they're playing these games on a, on a computer. It's a different I don't know. It's a different smile. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it, I, I can see a little difference when they're, it's related to being out the side and, 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 you know, fishing than it is when they're sitting behind a computer playing a game. There's no doubt. No doubt about it, man. No doubt about it. Well, Sergio, thanks for coming on today. Well, I really appreciate it. It's great to get to know you a little bit and I look forward to doing your show. Um, and if anybody wants to check it out, check it out, go to waypoint and check out his show, go to YouTube uh, what about social media? You got social media? Yeah, yeah. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, everything. It's uh, just Sergio Atanas, and I'll come up or then go through the website, and that'll take them everywhere. And the website's real easy, realfishy.com. Realfishy.com. That's a good name. Yep. All right. So, so, uh, all right, thank Sergio. You, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And we'll be back with another awesome guest like Sergio next week, and we'll see you then. Bye.